there's this like really, really simple saying that I think we've heard across jurisdiction nationally. And it's very simple. And the idea is simply, you know, there should be nothing for us that was designed without us. And we hear that echoed all the time. And it's such a, a basic value that I think, you know, at our core, we all agree with, but it's something that like agencies really struggle to remember and to operationalize. All right, grab your cup of coffee, a cup of tea, settle down for another episode of the Mosaic Foster Parents Cafe. Listen, we have a very important show and a very exciting show for you today. We're going to be sitting down with two exceptional colleagues of mine who I've known for about two years now. They, they do very, very important work and they focus on reimagining community centered design in child welfare. Now, there's a lot of talk all across the country about the need to really reimagine not only the child welfare system, but many of the human services systems. Just when we analyze how these systems were originally conceived and and some of the some of the history behind these systems, I'm talking about systemic racism. We're talking about bias on many levels and just a real targeting of particular communities, particular uh, black communities, uh, it really is a need to take a major look and really think about how we can reimagine these institutions. But my two guests today have really put some elbow grease on this in this topic, and they've really been working over the last few years to make an impact on reimagining community-centered design within the child welfare space specifically. I'm excited for this conversation. I think you will enjoy this conversation, and I believe you'll walk away with some very, very valuable information, some tactics, some strategies, and some ways that you can get involved and participate in the reimagining of some of our most important institutions. All right. So my first guest is Sonia Sony. She is currently a senior fellow placed at the Los Angeles County Department of Child and Family Services through Foster America. Foster America is a nonprofit organization which was founded by President Biden's current domestic policy advisor, Sherry Lockman. The organization aims to build a more just child welfare system, both nationally and locally. Sonia currently co-leads Los Angeles County's Youth Commission, the first ever youth-led governing body with formal power in L.A. County that confronts inequities in the county's largest local child welfare and juvenile justice systems. So welcome, Sonia. Our second guest is Jermaine Sherman. She is a social impact consultant working to elevate community-led transformations across social services to improve life and generational outcomes for vulnerable communities. She combines the best of strategic and analytical thinking from the business world with an unrelenting commitment to equity focused systems change as a social impact consultant. She leverages more than 10 years of cross sector experience in public sector management, consulting, business development, program design, and strategic communication to help organizations be of service to vulnerable communities, implementing strategic initiatives and scale positive outcomes. So 
both of my guests ha- are very much rooted in this work. And the, the topic that we're discussing today is a topic that they're living every day, practicing in their own work and also helping others adopt best practices. And so that's the reason why I invited you, ladies. Uh, Sonia Jermaine, thank you so much for joining me for this discussion and for joining the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yes. Thank you so much, Takim. Um, it's such a joy to be here to talk about a topic that is so dear to our hearts around community and youth voice. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the truth is, you know, I'll give my, my audience a little bit of background. You know, I've been watching you ladies work for, you know, the better part of, of two years at this point. And I've always been impressed by the passion, by the dedication, the focus and the ideas. I mean, you know, it's very obvious that both you, Sonia, and you, Jermaine, really care about children and families. Uh, you care about improving the system and you're willing to discipline yourselves to the, the messages that you espouse to the community. And that's very important. And so I thought there was really no better two people to bring on the show and discuss this topic. But you two. So thank you so much, you know, for agreeing to do this. The, the second little piece of background is that when I had the idea to do this show, I was not aware of the extent to which you two had been actively working on this, you know, not only just in your work, but writing and teaching and educating and really, you know, raising the academic rigor around this transformational change that we want to see. And so I was so pleasantly surprised to know that you guys have been working on or you ladies have been working on, you know, an article to really help others understand exactly how to leverage lived experience, why it's so important and what to do and what not to do. You know, it's very clear in your article that, you know, all work is not good work when it comes down to, you know, serving vulnerable populations. We know that vulnerable populations often get the short end of the stick. They often get the leftover energy and thought process. They don't get the, you know, the good stuff. And so, you know, what you what you ladies are proposing is a complete paradigm shift in terms of how to serve vulnerable populations. And so we're going to really get into that during the show. But before we do that, I do want my uh, listeners to know a little bit about you two ladies personally. So let's start off with Sonia. If you can tell me, you know, who are you, Sonia, and, and what brought you to this work? Well, thank you so much, Sakeem. I really can't, I feel like I can't talk about myself without talking about my ancestors. I descend from a lineage of freedom fighters, abolitionists, and community organizers in India. Um, My great-grandmother, she was a freedom fighter during India's struggle for independence from British colonial rule. And she founded a girls' rights nonprofit organization in the foothills of the Himalayas. But over the decades, it slowly turned into an orphanage. And 80 years later, it really became ground zero for my learnings and unlearnings in social justice and child welfare. Despite the good intentions of the orphanage, the system was not only inefficient, but it was very unjust. And with this discomfort, I started to really examine how orphanages across India were warehousing trafficked youth and those that had 
already had bio families. I began to see how the orphanage industrial complex in India was deeply detrimental to child development and child mental health. Um, so through the lens of medical anthropology and public health and community organizing, I've really tried to work at the intersection of child health and child rights work um, in India, Nepal, and East Africa, uh, really with a deep desire to help revolutionize India's child welfare system. Now I'm a, I'm a senior fellow at Foster America, as you mentioned. Um, I was placed at the largest child welfare and juvenile justice system in the country in Los Angeles County. And uh, really, I, I was placed there to practice reverse innovation, to really util, utilize the revolutionary community-driven methodologies that I've witnessed happening in spots on earth like India that usually are handed out aid, but are never the ones that Western child welfare um, systems go to for solutions. I now work at the Los Angeles County Youth Commission, as you mentioned, Takeem. Um, it's the first and only youth-led governance body in our county. Um, it's not an advisory board. It's an actual commission with formal power, as you mentioned, um, where, they, where youth commissioners who come from the child welfare and juvenile justice systems or who have experienced homelessness are really working alongside um, child welfare practitioners, the sheriff's department, our district attorney. They're the highest paid commissioners in the country. And they really are my teachers and what it means to institutionalize community voice. Man, that's so awesome. Thank you so much for that background. Jermaine, who, who are you and, and what brought you to the work? Yeah, thanks. Thank you for the opportunity to share just a bit about our, our work today. You know, I like to say that the trajectory of my own life was really forever and positively impacted because I got connected to quality community-based programs. It was for the first time in that capacity that I got to see folks who looked like me, who came from my community, uh, who were just doing amazing things in the world and really big of service. And so I, I began my sort of professional career at a really small nonprofit in Atlanta uh, that partnered with the lowest performing schools and the most under-resourced public housing communities to bring debate education to inner city youth. And I know that like debate is typically perceived as this kind of like elitist activity that requires lots of money and is kind of inaccessible. But our idea was that if we could help youth develop advocacy, research, problem solving, and critical thinking skills to really find and nurture their voices, uh, then we'd be empowering them to transform their own lives and their communities. Those programs were profoundly successful and were funded by the Department of Justice, but they worked because we co-designed those interventions with the communities that we serve. We co-designed them with mm -hmm. the impacted audiences. Um, mm -hmm. And it was in that capacity that I frankly saw kids with really limited means uh, achieve just some pretty remarkable things. And so there's this line that kind of rings true to me, and it's, it's by Margaret Wheatley. She says that there's, there's no power for change greater than a community discovering what it cares about. Uh, um, and so I've kind of built a career around uh, really elevating and maximizing the, the positive implications of community-led transformations. The Foster America Fellowship presented me specifically with an opportunity to leverage my background in like stakeholder management, sort of traditional business environments and social innovation to really craft a compelling business case for why working with impacted communities, with people who've been adversely impacted by public systems and child welfare is really the way that agencies should, should move going forward. And so post-fellowship, I started a social impact consultancy called Community Up, where I like to work with government agencies and nonprofits to really design, validate, and implement programs in partnership with folks who know what is happening on the ground uh, to really be of service to Black and Brown populations. 
Awesome, awesome, awesome. So like I said, I mean, I think it's very obvious, listen to your backgrounds and what's motivated you that, you know, we're talking to the right people today. So again, thank you. So with that said, you know, I mentioned the article that you two are have written together and it's not published yet, right? It actually is published. It came out uh, earlier this week. Earlier this week. Oh, man, I thought I was going to get the drop on that. Oh, man, <laughs> you guys snuck it out right before me. It's all good. It's all good. No, but it's but it's but it's it's news. It's it's new. It's, you know, you guys just finished this uh, and it's on this this topic. And so I do want to get into uh, some of that, you know, some of what you outlined in that article. I, I did read through the article in detail and it's an excellent, excellent piece I think that uh, you raised some really uh, important topics and, you know, I really do want to want to get into that. But let's let's ground our, our audience and what we're talking about. You know, I've mentioned lived experience, lived experience experts. I talked about the importance of centering community and, and the design process of transformation. But what what is lived experience? Jermaine, could you help us kind of define what lived experience is? So, you know, lived experience at its core or lived expertise is really the unique knowledge base that an individual cultivates after firsthand experience of a particular set of conditions. In the context of child welfare, people with lived experience are those individuals who have gone through or are currently experiencing foster care, temporary placements, court systems, really just being impacted by the, the child welfare system that often separates children from families and removes kids from their communities and homes of origin. Folks with lived experience, from my perspective, frankly, always have valuable knowledge and reference points from which policymakers and child welfare agency leaders are just far removed. They know what's happening on the ground. They can tell you exactly how policies uh, vary at the implementation level and how that adversely impacts the lives of youths who are in care, those people who are their friends, their, their, their colleagues. They often bring deep empathy and understanding of what works and what doesn't work what youth in care need to feel supported, to be well, to thrive. And they often just have the best ideas for materially and swiftly improving conditions for people who are currently in care. It's their proximity to the execution of child welfare activities that provides them with this unique expertise and ability to, to shepherd change. The problem here is that folks with lived experience aren't always valued as experts, mm, right? Because right. Uh, in some disciplines and domains, expertise comes at the end of a couple of advanced degrees and having served in this sort of role within an organization formally. And we discount what it means to like live that, the experience of, of child welfare. And so it, the, there's some context in which uh, lived experts, their voices aren't always present in the arenas where decisions are being made. And, and that, that's the case because agency leaders recognize that there's a real power in that voice, right? There's a real command there that could frankly threaten, uh, you know, perspectives of what success needs from an agency perspective. Absolutely. You know, when you think about folks with, with lived experience, the system so often seems to be about processes, you know, about a, a lot of processes and expertise in the system seems to translate to how well do you know the processes that run the system. Right. But, but we know that the processes that run the system are not necessarily human processes, right? They're, they're processes for legality and processes for financial management and processes for, you know, hierarchy, right. Making sure that the the hierarchy is followed. 
but there really there really is a, a missed opportunity when you don't focus on the human the humans that are that that, that are impacted by all these processes and, and so who's representing those humans in the process right yeah. we got all these you know process workers but what about the human part and i think that that's where the lived experience comes in because those are the the people that are actually receiving you know the benefit or lack thereof of those processes so so why why Sonia is lived experience critical to systems change and how important do you think it is to have people who are impacted by the child welfare system play a central role in transforming it Yes, Tikim, well, I couldn't agree more to what you both said. And um, so I wanted to just start with uh, my hero and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. She always said that, you know, those closest to the pain should be closest to the power. And that's really at the heart of what this question is. I really feel that youth and families with lived expertise understand the complexities and holes of a system far more than any outsider can ever know. Every revolutionary social movement historically has been committee-led that has been sustainable. And, you know, nowadays movement building and social change is much more decentralized. It no longer rests on the one charismatic leader than like it did decades ago. So for example, the Black Lives Matter movement, few can really name the cohort of leaders that really sparked the movement. And that's really where the direction of community organizing and movement building is going. Child welfare systems across the United States have really struggled to institutionalize community voice. Um, and it's because unlike other government agencies that serve as really an opt-in safety net and provide public goods, child welfare is vastly different. It's an involuntary punitive system um, with state-sanctioned power that separates families that have historically, and it's historically fostered deep see detention between communities of color and child welfare agencies. So it's very difficult to center communities when there's already that tension there. Um, so as a result, the concentration of power in child welfare is particularly centralized in government agencies. And as a result, community-based organizations, advocates, and parents and youth often serve on the periphery of that system rather equal partners and policy and programmatic design. Um, so for example, I come from a background in public health. Um, public health is a voluntary system, as we've seen, you know, especially during the pandemic, where community public health is an entire field that public health practitioners learn. Community health workers are an entire workforce that um, where community members are from the community. They're trained in public health and screening and preventative care. And they, they can lead in many countries, they lead majority of healthcare for marginalized patients in their local communities. Um, whereas here, that is in child welfare, that is just definitely vastly different in how we practice it. Wow. Uh, you really broke that down. <laughs> uh, that is uh, that is powerful. You know, your juxtaposition between the voluntary and involuntary nature of child welfare versus other government agencies is is super strong. But also when you couple that with the historic kind of nature of the relationship you know, just, just the fact that it has always been contentious, that it has always been punitive and it, it has always approached communities of color as criminals to, to a certain degree. And so, you know, you do get to feel, you know, you know, I, I've shared with my audience before that I spent eight years as a, a, a water of the state. I was in foster care and aged out of foster care. Uh, and I totally, I mean, even being in foster care, I felt like I was being surveilled, you know, and I felt like I was, you know, I was basically in a, 
uh, you know, an open air jail, right. That, you know, where I'm being monitored and basically, you know, folks are kind of at the ready, you know, waiting for me to make a mistake. And, you know, they got all the people in place to be able to snatch me up and, you know, and do with me what they, what they will. And I really did grapple with that tension, you know, through the whole process. It's like, don't get locked up because <laughs> you, know, mm-hmm. you know, they're watching you, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, um, so yeah, I think that that point is so, so critical. I guess, you know what, what I want to do now is I want to go into the um, article. Uh, I got a couple more questions that I want to ask, but in the article, you talked about redesigning how we respond to those experiencing adversity. Can you, can you guys, one of you guys expound on that? What, what do you mean by redesign how we respond to those that are experiencing adversity? So, uh, Dakeem, thank you so much for bringing up such an important issue that Jermaine and I have really thought about a lot. Um, We really believe that systems are not broken, but they're designed exactly the way they're meant to be designed. And traditionally in child welfare, there's been such a scarcity in funding and resources devoted to community leadership infrastructure. So most often what community voice looks like in child welfare is really reduced to community engagement initiatives. So focus groups, listening tours, surveys, youth advisory boards that are very tokenizing. There's no department, staff, or budget really devoted to giving community voice legitimacy in in local government. And then now there's been kind of a shift from that traditional community engagement initiatives to human-centered design, and it's become extremely popular and massified across the country, both at the federal level and local level. And Janine will go into that as well. Yes, I think we we put together uh, sort of conceptually a design approach that sort of gets at the core of some of those limitations that some acknowledge. But I think fundamentally the, the issue is that in this sort of massified shift to leaning into human-centered design as a problem-solving framework, child welfare agencies have picked up some some rather troubling habits. Uh, one of the the sort of key limitations to human-centered design is that you know you have these uh, sort of design experts, these sort of context-independent problem solvers who join an organization or geography for a short amount of time uh, to kind of help you find a solution to a problem. The, the challenge there is that those experts often come with ideas that are just like ahistorical and apolitical and not derived from the community that you're talking about or the context in which folks live. And so you've got this sometimes one shoe fits all kind of approach. Um, Sterilizing. Oftentimes. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Or the. But the, the the folks who need to be at the table aren't aren't there in a meaningful way. And so a part of what we wanted to to really think through with with our readers was what is a different approach? What is an approach that takes the 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 most promising sort of tactics and toolkits from from human centered design, but really defers to a more equity centered design framework that optimizes and elevates the voices of folks who are closest to to the challenge. So we, you know, there are a lots of approaches to redistributing power to those closest to and most impacted by a particular problem um, to really achieve meaningful systems change. 
Sonia, our dear colleague, Jessica Mason, and I uh, recently published an article in the Child Welfare League of America Journal on anti-racist design approaches for really centering the experiences of impacted communities to improve social services delivery and outcomes for, for recipients. In it, we recommend that change agents really think about how to engage those and elevate those uh, with lived experience in the context of power sharing and even transferring. And we do that through this sort of continuum. On the far left, you have, uh, frankly, what is the worst conditions possible. And that is where agency leaders and policymakers make life-altering decisions about services without ever consulting service recipients or those with the most intimate knowledge of the problem at hand. Uh, sort of equally disappointing, uh, the next engagement practice sort of moving to the left of the continuum are often tokenizing or extracting encounters where agency leaders, consultants, designers sort of parachute in, they selectively consult or get a few sort of high profile uh, lived experts to kind of rubber stamp their strategy for the sake of saying that there's sort of community buy-in and investment and this sort of shared vision of success between the agency and, and service recipients. So from there, toward the center of the continuum, you have co-design. And this is where lived experts and agency leaders mutually influence one another and devise a plan of action and an ongoing, truly collaborative manner. Now, this is where a lot of child welfare agencies aim, aim to land. And it's, it's a good place to be, but it doesn't actually elevate the authority of lived experts in a way that truly builds their, their capacity. We recommend that change agents truly aspire to work at the far right of the continuum, where lived experts drive the problem identification, the convening of change agents, and solutioning processes to design context-specific interventions that actually work, that are aligned with the community's values and norms and traditions. The goal here is to achieve authentic community ownership, where communities uh, led by lived experts and people who've been impacted by systems have both the capacity, the access, the resources, and the authority to implement solutions without an agency's influence or permission. Absolutely. And you know what that reminds me of is, so so we both have, you know, business management background. And one of the one of the business man- management books that I, I really appreciate is Good to Great. And it's it's a research book about, you know, how to excel beyond expectations, you know, kind of kind of be the leader of the pack in the, in the private sector. What are the core drivers of an organization that really separate the good companies from the great companies, the really high performing companies from the mediocre companies? And well, the first principle was about leadership. So, you know, you have to have just dynamic leadership you know, that's thinking outside the box and acting just different, you know, so you call it level five leadership. But the second most important was getting the right people on the bus before you decide where to go. And and, and, it, and it seems like this ownership principle really aligns with making sure that the right folks are on the bus and they're going to tell you where the destination needs to be. Because because they're the right people to decide where the bus goes. And I think it's the same with child welfare that when we look around and we say, well, why do we keep the outcomes, you know, are so dismal? And how come these programs and these initiatives that we put together just seem to fall flat on on their face? I mean, some of these initiatives, you know, they, they fall so flat that you're like, who put it together? Right. Uh, but I think it's because we, we don't have the right people on the bus when we design and, and, and they don't have that ownership. And the other thing that I thought about was that 
sustainability, right? Child welfare experiences very high turnover. And, and so if you're going to have a, a community solution or, you know, or a solution that, that the community is going to take on and it's going to survive a cycle, then they, they've got to, they've got to be running that. It's got to be rooted yeah. in their community. They got to own that or else they're going to be subject to the whims of change, politics, government, you know, whatever, whatever have you. Exactly. The power's not in their hands. There's this, there's this like really, really simple saying that I think we've heard across jurisdiction nationally from youth advocacy groups. And it's very simple. And the idea is simply, you know, there should be nothing for us that was designed without us. Right. And we hear that echoed all the time. And it's such a, a basic value that I think, you know, at our core, we all agree with. But it's something that like agencies really struggle to remember and to operationalize um, when it comes to truly designing interventions and in service of, of youth that actually work. So I, I couldn't agree with that that sentiment more. Absolutely. Well, thank you for for indulging me and and allowing me to to, to go off script just a little bit. So it sounds like we understand, you know, what lived experience is. So we understand some some old ways of doing business. We understand, you know, kind of the status quo, which is this kind of co-design, human-centered design. And 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 you've outlined very, very eloquently a vision of where where we can go. Can can you share with, with us in the audience some models that are currently being used to center uh, lived experience and, and to center community voice in the right way? Yes, Takim. So as we mentioned, you know, the child welfare um, sector really looked to the private sector for human-centered design as like a very quick fix solution. Um, whereas, you know, in human-centered design, it was originally created for product development, um, like for an iPhone, for example. Whereas the public sector, we're really trying to create structural po- uh, policy change and programmatic design. And the traditional human-centered design model just doesn't fit in that. And furthermore, there's very little knowledge of the outcomes that human-centered design does in the public sector. Uh, we don't have any data around the efficacy of it. So instead, we, re- we have really thought about, like, let's look to a range of evidence-based community participatory methodologies that have been used by communities, especially marginalized communities globally for decades for, you know, and them being the true experts around this. So, for example, um, the city of Boston launched the Youth Lead the Change Participatory Budgeting Initiative. Um, So in 2013, the city of Boston launched this initiative, which is the first youth-led participatory budgeting initiative in the U.S. Participatory budgeting is a democratic process that was founded by the Brazilian Workers' Party in Brazil to really launch radical participatory forms of governance in which community residents really have the power over how public resources are allocated at the local and national levels. It's been lauded as this revolutionary civics in action where participatory budgeting really decentralizes power and holds governments and public institutions accountable. Um, So now the Boston Mayor's Office works with 2,000 youth annually between the ages of 12 and 25, where they get to determine how to spend $1 million of the city's capital budget per fiscal year. And the youth identify and co-design projects through the Mayor's Youth Council, um, where they can, some of the projects that they've really led are um, making greener spaces and also really in elevating the way that homeless shelters are run in, in Boston. 
Um, another methodology that we really have looked to in our work is the vast community organizing methods that have been used by kinship and caregiver communities across the country. So, for example, Community Coalition or COCO in South LA has the kinship and care movement where they have a very specific way that they organize their communities. Rise in New York City, the movement for family power. Um, these are all incredible youth and family-led initiatives that really center community organizing in their practices for structural policy change. The community organizing framework that Jermaine and I really used in our work in, in South LA was founded by Marshall Gans. He helped craft the United Farm Workers Movement alongside Cesar Chavez, and he also shaped Obama's community organizing strategy back in his first election cycle. He, Marshall Gans really grounds his practice in how to translate values into the motivation for action, really how to build a intentional relationships and shared leadership as the foundation for purposeful collective action, and how to really strategize turning resources of one's constituency into the power needed to achieve very clear goals. And then lastly, how do you secure commitments by those in power? So he's been my Northern star in so much of the work that we do. And then lastly, another really great example is community mapping. So as I mentioned early, earlier, I'm such a fan of reverse innovation where we can learn so much from resource denied communities globally rather than all the solutions coming from those in power or especially those in the West. So when I was in India, I really was able to work with an NGO called Prayasam. They're based in Kolkata, India, and they really tried to decolonize the way data sciences are gathered, like data is collected and, and analyzed. So Prayasam works with youth leaders in their very uh, various rural villages across Kolkata, where they use digital community mapping to map infectious disease and other inequalities in their villages. And now Stanford uses their technology to teach about community mapping across the uh, globally. What are some of the principles or, or guidelines that you recommend for how to honor and collaborate with lived experience experts? Yeah, so uh, about two years ago, uh, Sonia and I commissioned a project in, in South LA uh, in partnership with, with Youth and Care called Photo Voice uh, through our lens. And so at the core of the project, we gave uh, about 11 middle school age youth who are currently in care uh, digital cameras. And we encouraged them to go out into their communities and to document experiences of their lived environments uh, to really just help us understand what their day-to-day -day looked like, what made them happy, what made them sad, uh, what their walks home from school uh, looked like. And it was through that sort of participatory research methodology uh, that we were able to come up with some recommendations about how social services agencies could be of better service to youth, even using existing resources, right? By understanding their values, their fears, the things that sort of bring bring them joy. It was frankly through the execution of that of that research that we I had to pivot a little bit to kind of a, you know, a, a be responsive to the, the global pandemic that we were able to assess a few mistakes that we made um, and advance some principles that uh, we think would help uh, change agents in the future sort of design interventions with, with just deep humility and, and a bit more success. The first is I think that uh, we need to think more deeply about how we develop bi-directional feedback loops to really elevate community involvement. And by that, I mean, it is the norm for agencies to say, we've got this problem, uh, let's convene this group, let's get their feedback. And then after we have their ideas and we've sort of extracted their experiences, we'll go and solve it. But there isn't a channel for communities to oftentimes 
start that kind of dialogue, right? Like when communities uh, want to get together to form a, a, a committee or to solve a problem, there's so much red tape and there's no real sort of front door, right? That typically looks like you make a ton of calls that go and answer. Hopefully you can get connected to local government that can get you a me. It's just a difficult process. So really thinking about how do we establish bi-directional channels of communication so that communities and governments uh, could work together with, with more ease and to also be transparent um, about how they're working together and sort of what their, their goals are. I think the second sort of principle that we recommend is just uh, an intentional shift from a human-centered to a situation-centered design context, right? Mm. And we sort of talked about some of the limitations of what human-centered design uh, has, has meant in the practice of child welfare. But really a deep understanding of like, it is really important that agencies don't fall prey to a historical or a political approaches uh, and that they truly invest time into understanding a particular geography, a region, to, to understanding how a community lives and what they value. And it is only at that point that you have that understanding that you can start to solve, to kind of design problems that, that actually work. And in doing that, it's really important that Agencies acknowledge that live experts are frankly just in the best position to provide that education to, to agencies. And that the provision of that education is not something that you should get for free, right? Like that you should compensate lift experts for their expertise and for their ability to provide such a valued uh, sort of consultation at, at that stage. I, I got um, a question for you on that one. And that and that's that's a that's a powerful uh, recommendation. So what you say avoid apolitical and ahistorical approaches. It's how what would you say to a say uh 501c3 organization that says hey we have ethical constraints that doesn't allow us to you know to be political or to advocate for a political position is there a way to not take this kind of vanilla apolitical approach and also stay within the bounds of of you know, the restrictions that um, nonprofit organizations have in, in at least in, in this country? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'll share just a, a bit of a context from our from our design of Photo Voice and why we chose to do it in South L.A., which is a particular majority minority uh, working class community that it's important to know that like that is the community where the Rodney King riots happened. And there's decades and decades of mistrust between community and government agencies because of things that have happened, right? And so the ability for Sonia and I to walk in, no matter how cool and brown we are, right? And no matter how, whatever capital we have as individuals, that we represent those agencies. And there's an inherent limitation in our ability to build trustful relationships, knowing that that is how our agencies have interacted with those communities in the past. Mm. To not acknowledge that is to set yourself up to failure, right? Mm. And so just thinking about That's what powerful. is this, in order to do that well, you've got to first acknowledge, like, I understand that this community's experience of government agents in the, it's in the past has been this. And these are places that we, like, these are wrongs that we need to make right, right? It's, it's, it's the humility that you can bring as a partner and being a change agent. It just simply acknowledges the unique experience and trauma of communities that has to be addressed. And, and and that's not always from a deficit perspective, right? Like there's a real opportunity to lean into the assets there. Uh, South LA is an incredibly rich community in some ways, not from like a resource perspective, but like the innovation, the way that communities support one another, the strength of faith-based communities there as a convener and as a place where folks can go to get 
just the support that they need is is truly amazing, right? And so you only know that once you spend time in a community and you get to walk alongside the experts in that community to really think about your role and your role as not a person who solves a problem, but as the person who empowers those community leaders, the people who have been there and doing the work for years to solve those problems in sustainable ways. And for me, that that has been, that, that looks like advocacy and sort of resource cultivation. Nice. You know, I see, I see a few more, uh, a few more on this list though. I, I see, you know, t- talk to me about this shift in power to the impacted communities. Can you, can you get into that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, we've talked about this a little bit, but I think we've got to think about this in more formal ways. Uh, you know, I think if I had to kind of uh, say a third principle, it would be just a, a practice and a real commitment to shifting power to impacted communities. And by that, I mean positioning lived experts to be decision makers in ways that matter, right? So thinking about the Youth Commission work that Sonia's doing, where they have the ability to request data from department heads and to call a meeting and to hold them accountable in ways that really matter and impact the, the, the lives of, of folks in care. Um, so whether that is, you know, holding space on uh, sort of elected roles or advisory boards, um, but just making sure that that unique voice and perspective of folks who have lived experts are represented at every level of, of decision-making in a way that, that is truly meaningful. And the last piece we, we've sort of touched on a little bit, and that was just, uh, you know, the practice of, of, of prioritizing both healing-centered and trauma-informed design approaches. Yeah, um, that healing-centered is so critical. It that is, is so it is. critical, right? Because that's, that's where you get to repair, you know, the damage done, right? And, and then open up the possibility of imagining something new and different and yeah. just like, you know, not, not, not nursing yourself, but, it, but really thriving, right? You got to go through that healing process in order to get to the other side where you're thriving, where you, where you're, where you, with a possibility of thriving is there. Cause otherwise you're just wounded, right? Like if you don't, yeah. if you don't do that, I really feel like this one is super, super important. Yeah. At the, the the start of our fellowship, we were fortunate enough to get introduced to Dr. Sean Goodright's uh, work. And he talks a lot about the importance of agencies not projecting the limitations of broken systems on to, to be the limitations of youth who are in care, right? right and right. so that's just a reminder to, to think about, to lean into more asset framing when it comes to both impacting communities and, and individuals who, who've been in care. The, the last piece I'll, I'll sort of add here that it sort of is connected to this sort of focus on on healing centered is agencies, child welfare agencies are, their North Star is its success, right? Like whatever that means. Right. But it's all about measurement and outcome reporting and being accountable to sort of federal regulatory agencies. And so it's really important that we redefine success in a way that actually matters for communities. Uh, and by that, I mean, we it's important to kind of you know, interrogate this deep-seated idea that success is measured by the quantity of funding relationships that you have or cross-sector collaborations with, you know, agencies who will hold a fellowship for our youth here and there. Um, But instead to consider measuring success by the quality of relationships that an agency has with with its clients, essentially, right? With its mm. service recipients, mm. uh, with a number of community-based organizations who are your partners and doing the work, who are supporting families and being well and thriving and the best parents that they could be. And really just sort of advocating beyond uh, those those groups that are 
that already kind of path the but are the agency's partners and sort of the service agreement. So just thinking about success from a different perspective and making the space and time to define success in a way that is, you know, that that's a shared vision between an agency and service recipients. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sonia, what what are some other ways that lived experts could be used to help change the system? Yes, did you oh, sorry to go before that, can I also just say one more principle that, Sure, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I thank you so much, Jermaine, for sharing those incredible principles. And I think one that has really tugged at my heart recently with the Youth Commission in LA County is that we never also want to put youth and family well-being at the expense of loftier policy goals. So, for example, at the Youth Commission, you know, these youth commit 15 youth commissioners are meeting with 37 different LA County departments on any given day. Um, their time is being used to give speeches and speak on podcasts and write op-eds. And yet a lot of our youth commissioners sometimes don't have stable housing. They don't have gas money to get to these very high, like elitist meetings with policymakers in our county. And so we also, Janine and I, when we were doing our work in South LA, really had to take a step back and really understand that all of this larger structural policy change doesn't matter when we are not taking into account the mental and emotional well-being of the youth and families that we work with. Um, and that's been like attention that we've held in our in our work. And and so in in the implications of that is that, you know, you, you may need to take some steps back to put the, the structures in place to, to be able to make sure that those those youth are getting what they need as they engage the process to help to help the system change. Exactly. And that their voice and expertise are not being extracted um, and exploited at their expense and that there's always mechanisms in place to also help them with their long term healing and thriving as professionals, future professionals, as leaders in the system. So at the Youth Commission, we have a very robust mentorship program and professional development program in place to really ensure that they also thrive long beyond their their term limit as a youth commissioner in the county. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And that is so critical. I mean, one of the things that I noticed when I was working for the state of Indiana is that when you look around the table, when you have these, you know, these kind of focus group type participation, you look around the table and you can see the budgets of the agency. Right. You can see the annual salaries as you look around the table. But when you look at the participant doesn't represent a significant chunk, if anything, right? And so somehow we're saying this voice is important, but relatively speaking, how is important is it really, right? I mean, that's the question that we really have to ask ourselves. And the question too becomes, okay, if this voice is not involved in the process at all, mm-hmm. where, where are we at in terms of success or failure? Exactly. You know, right? I mean, that is so important. Um, so when we talked about human-centered design earlier, we have found that human-centered design for firms get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do these one-off contracts with public service agencies. Um, whereas, you know, youth and families who are, you know, being brought into like these design firms, like focus groups and listening tours, they get paid a gift card or a small stipend of $50 an hour. So, I mean, just even the way that we design our way of um, seeking community voice is so inequitable in and of itself. How are you going to get 
outcomes that will transcend that or, you know, and so, right. and that's something that. Is yeah. Just, I witnessed a design. I, I witnessed a overhaul, a systems overhaul contract process, right? We bring <laughs> in evaluate and look at the plans and all that. And it was very interesting to see a contractor from like seven states away come in and say, oh, look, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to run this thing. Uh, you know, I'm going to bring all the people together. I got my PowerPoints. You know, I know how this thing goes. I know how this is supposed to, you know, you know roll out. I, I, I know the language. And there was there was no real requirement to 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 break that contract down with local folks that actually experienced the system here. Like that was not a part of the uh, contract award criteria. You know, that wasn't a, a part of the of the strategic plan for for the redesign. And so, you know, I, I really do hear hear what you're saying. And I think that if we get the future state that that's that you, Sonia and Jermaine are are suggesting, then that that type of process would change. You know, when we say we're doing a systems overhaul and the internal systems of a child welfare agency are going to be completely redesigned, that that must be a process that requires the voice and participation of lived experience experts on staff, you know, compensated appropriately and listened to in driving that process to say, here's where we need change. Here's where we need adjustment. And not saying that they're going to be the final authority, right? That they're going to have the final say, but they should certainly be an equal authority and an equal uh, voice uh, in that process. So, you know, I, th that's all I really had in terms of questions. I think we covered a lot of ground. I thank you, ladies, for not only your enthusiasm, but you, you came with concrete examples that that others can research and follow and i'm going to make many of those examples available on the website when i uh, when i share this this episode but this was a rich rich discussion and i'm overjoyed for what you're doing and what you brought to the podcast today so thank you for this discussion Thank you. Thank you for creating such a curated and important platform for, for folks to get resources and to be in community um, because this is truly important work and allyship makes it fun and doable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, we will have information for how to get in contact with Sonia and Jermaine if you need to. Do we want to want to give your, your website, Jermaine, one more time? Sure. Yeah. It's just communityupdesign.com. Awesome. Awesome. Do you have a website, Sonia, that you want to share? No. Okay. We'll have the contact information and, and all the resources that we covered in this episode. Thank you for, for listening. Thank you for, for continuing to support the Mosaic Foster Parents Cafe podcast. You know, this is just a, one small act that, that we're trying to do to help push the system in the right direction. And uh, we couldn't do it without your support. So thank you so much. 